Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. We're going for the book of Ephesians, and if you're here just visiting, uh, we are going through our study in the letter, the epistle, the book to the Ephesians. Um, we've, we've made a lot of progress. We are in chapter 6. And, um, you know, we have considered how Ephesians is evenly divided into two portions. The first three chapters being doctrinal and the last three chapters being very instructive, um, giving us um, application which we could um, apply to our lives, obviously. And we've, we've seen so many wonderful truths within God's word and within our journey through the book of Ephesians. And last week, we touched upon um, you know, the armor of God and how the armor of God is God's provision for us to be um, to fight within the battle that we are engaged in. And, um, you know, we, we looked at the reality that we are actually in a war. And we are involved in warfare that involves powers that are greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Um, the scriptures, as we looked at last week, you know, it gives us references. It gives us glimpses, glimpses into spirituality, into the things of the spirit. But it doesn't, you know, there isn't a, a book which says this is what it is. And so as we go through the Bible, we try to make sense. We try to put together the jigsaw puzzle to, to, to get more understanding of what the spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension is all about. And, and as we looked at things last week, um, we, we saw that we're in a war and we're not even really the main players. We are the main players in the war, but the main players in the war is really Satan and God. And it isn't like God started having beef with Satan. Satan desired to be like God. He wanted to have what God had. He wanted to be God. And I made references last week to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And I don't know if anyone actually took notes, went home, and actually looked at those portions of Scripture. Because they're very, very interesting. And if you've never looked at them before, it's, it's good portions which really you should go and highlight. You know, make markings within your Bibles because, you know, if you get into conversation who, with someone who no, doesn't know anything about spirituality or doesn't believe in the devil, you can just take them straight to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. So if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you today, if you would open up your Bibles to Isaiah 14, I thought we'd just, we'd just briefly go through what it says in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and... Now, just for us to be aware exactly who we're dealing with and how this thing came about. Amen? So, if you're there in Isaiah chapter 14, please say amen. Amen. Isaiah 14, we pick up from verse 12, which says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, we looked at many references last week to, to Satan, the devil, the deceiver, you know, all these different references. And here's another reference for him, the son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. See, here we see, you know, what was birthed within Satan's heart. This desire to be like God. And it's considered to be the five I wills of Satan. But God's response comes in verse 15. He says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest 
depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of its prisoners? You see, when it's all said and done, and we get a bigger glimpse, we actually see what's going into the spiritual realm, we're going to look and think, rah, rah. Is that who was the, is that the devil? Is that Satan? Were you the one who sort of like brought all this drama into humanity, into the world? You know, he wanted to be like God, but God says, bruv, come on. I created you. And know your place. But even though that is the case, even though God will put him in his place, he is still, as we know, a formidable foe. He's someone who's real, whether you believe it or not, and we can't just push him to one side and think, oh, the devil doesn't exist. Because he does. And so that is the little glimpse in the book of Isaiah of, of, of Satan and, and his fall, basically. And then we look in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. And this is a more lengthy portion of scripture, which says, Son of man. Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, it's talking about the king of Tyre, but it's talking about a king, but it's really speaking about the spirit behind the king. Okay? So, as I said last week, we're, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But there's influences behind flesh and blood. Getting people, manipulating people, suggesting things to people to get people to do things. And so here it's saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. And just speaking to Reynolds within, within, within the break, you know, he had all these stones as his covering. And we're going to go on to see that God's light would reflect on those stones. And so he looked radiant. He looked beautiful. But it wasn't him looking, it's God's light shining on him, which made him look beautiful. But the devil got it twisted. It goes on to say, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till... Iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing, out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you down to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and you shall be no more forever. You see, Satan, Lucifer, had this prime position, as it were, before the throne of God. Covered with all these beautiful stones, the, the, the radiance, the, the light of God would just shine a reflect of him. He, was, he, had, 
He had pipes built in so he can sing and his worship was magnificent. And he led the worship before the throne of God. And when I picture this, I always think of it. It's like you've got the whole heavenly host worshipping, praising the almighty God. And as it came up, it came up as if it came to Satan, the, Satan, the covering cherubim. And it's like he would gather it together and then go to God. That's how I picture it anyway. To God. And God would receive it. It would be beautiful. But it came a point where the worship was coming up to him. The light was flowing off of him. He was looking good. He was sounding good. The worship was coming up and he went, this is good. I I like this. Actually, I should have this. This should be mine. I want to be like you. I want to be just like you. Or why shouldn't I be? I'm beautiful. I'm the covering cherub. You see, iniquity was burst within him. And the thing about angelic beings is, is basically, angelic beings, if they, I'm going to try and use it in this language, if they choose to be evil, then they are totally evil. That is it. But if they choose to be good, then they are good. There isn't like us, one minute we're good, one minute we're evil. One minute we're, we're, we love the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Next minute it's like, oh me, woe is me. You know, they either are one or the other. And so we don't see in scripture a redemption plan for angels. There's no redemption plan because you're either this or you're that. And he decided it was the thought must have come into his heart, into his mind, and he must have thought, no, I want that. I don't know if he could have gone to the father and said, you know what? Father, all this worship is coming to me. The light's radiating off of me. And it's not good because I'm having these thoughts. I don't know. He doesn't say it in the text, but, you know, not like us. Maybe some of you are at work and, you know, there's an opportunity to get all the glory for something. And you're like, yes, I love it. I look good. I'm going to get a bonus. Because, you know, when, when people boost us up, it feels good. It feels good. We like it. And the tendency is to say, oh, yeah, I like it and I want more of that. And the, what we have to do, <laughs> we have to guard ourselves from that. Because I'm not saying just like Satan, but if we let that take a natural course... It's going to bring us down to a road and and a place where it's full of pride. Full of pride. Look at what I've done. Everything in your conversation is, yeah, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how good I am. Yeah, I did this and I did that. And you know when you're talking with people who just talk about, yeah, I did this and I did that. It's a bit off-putting, isn't it? Not to say you don't like the person, but you just think, why are you always talking about yourself? Am I the only one? But you know what I mean? It's like, you know, those tendencies when you can get all of the praise, it's nice when you can say, well, you know what? It isn't just me, you know. It's a joint effort. It's a joint effort. Now, I like cycling. This is by the by. During the summer, I watched the Tour de France. First time I've really got into it and everything, but I loved it and everything. And there's a guy called... Mark Cavendish, he's called the Manx Missile, basically, yeah? And Mark Cavendish is a genius at sprinting. That is his thing. I'm not going to go into to, to Tour de France because I know you're not interested. But he's a sprinter, and he's fast. And so what happens is these guys, they cycle for like, I don't know, four or five hours per day. And at the end of the race, after they've been cycling about four or five hours, right, who's going to win the race? And they're all cycling within teams, okay? So they're all cycling within teams. And the lovely thing about, this is a digression totally. The lovely thing about it is when you're cycling in a team, yeah, in a Tour de France, if your bike 
if something happens to your bike, it's not like the rest of the team say, see you later, fix it and, we'll, and catch us up. No, they all stop. They all make Even if you are the main person, they will give them, they have my bike. And they'll let the main person carry on going. Okay? It's a lovely work effort in it. There's lots of things we can learn from in scripture about it. Anyway. So, he's the mag missile. And so he gets to the end of the race. And it's like everything's been building up to this point here. You've been cycling. Why not just do the end of the race? Why cycle for three or four hours? Just do the end of the race. But no. They're cycling for all this time. And at the very, very end, you've got the lead person. And it's kind of like he starts setting up the play at the very, very end. And just before he gets within about 100 meters and everything, it's like the lead person and the max missile start making their move. And when you start cycling, it's like you get in the sort of like the wind trap of the person ahead. It's like they're, they're taking away all the breeze and everything. And then he catapults out and he's like, and he wins. I love it. It's just heavy. But you know what? You interview Mark Cavendish at the end. He gets all the glory. He gets the trophy. He gets the green jersey. Because you get a green jersey if you're the best sprinter, yeah? But he turns around and he says, I've got the jersey. It's not just me. It's a team effort. I've been cycling with these guys for five hours. They're, they're working. They're doing all this. Not for themselves. Not just for me, but for us. I get all the glory at the end of it, but it's not just me. So let me boost up my friends. And I love it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, Mark, you are the Manx missile. You're heavy. And you deserve your t-shirt. But you know what? You don't forget and just say, it was all me. I'm just heavy. He doesn't say that. And you know, and that's the whole thing. When we're working as a team, when we're working, not even just as you're working as a team, you know that... Sharing all the accolades with your friends, with your work colleagues, is nice. It's a team effort. You know, it isn't just the one person at the top gets it, it gets the bonus, and oh, yeah. And they don't even sort of like say, yeah, I come out and take her out for a meal. <laughs> it's horrible. And so, a major digression. But I hope you start getting interested into the Tour de France. <laughs> Not related to Mark Cavendish, but Ezekiel, Isaiah. You know, these little insights, these little glimpses into Satan, Lucifer, his downfall, how it all came about. You know, these little pictures. You know, and Jesus, what did he have to say about, about the devil? He said, you know, he was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. See, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what Jesus says about him. And we considered last week how, you know, how he is the father of lies. And in Revelation 12, he told such a lie that he could get a third of the angels to revolt against God. Now, I don't know what he said. I don't know if it was related to Ezekiel and they thought, yeah, do you know what? I saw the way that, that, that light was shining off of you there. I saw the way you, you sung that note. MC singers, be note, um, take note, please. Because you know what? In the music realm, it, uh, industry, there's that thin line between, you know, it's to God or is it just for me because I like it. Oh, that was a heavy bar you just said there, brother. Oh, it's heavy, heavy. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Well, brother, you've got to be careful there, or sis, in my opinion. So, he told such a lie in Revelation chapter 12 to get all these angels to revolt against God. I don't know how that works, but they did. And... Revelation 12 says that he was cast to the earth and he's demonic host. And as we looked at last week, you know, we're not wrestling just against flesh and blood. Against principalities and powers. And so, as I said before, we are fighting against the formidable foe and these demonic powers. We're fighting against unseen forces, unseen powers. Unseen powers that, that are good at giving us suggestive thoughts. You know, thoughts which 
plays upon our own lusts and our own desires. You know, the book of James, it says that we are each tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and, in, and we are enticed. So, you know, the way I picture it again is how, you know, you, you already have your own lusts and desires. And it's like the enemy just comes and says, yeah, why, why don't you just do that? It's okay if you have that. And if you don't take that thought captive, you'll start entertaining it. Before you know it, something which you think, where did that even come from? Now, you're actually doing the very thing you know the Lord doesn't want you to do. The very thing you know you struggle with, and you're thinking, you know what, I really need to battle hard against this because I know I'm weak in this area. But the enemy, he comes with these little devices. He says, little suggestion here, little suggestion there. You know, the powers which we fight again against as believers, we know that they oppress believers. You know, it's a bit like how the slave girl went around following the Apostle Paul in Acts 16 and was tormenting him, tormenting him, tormenting him until the Apostle Paul just turned around and rebuked the, the demon and cast it out. Oppression. You know, as believers, we can suffer from being oppressed by demonic forces. It's a reality. And what we need to do is we need to take Paul's advice, apply the armor of God, take every thought captive, study our word. That's what we need to do. Now, as believers, we can be oppressed by demonic influences, but... Unbelievers, you know, they can be possessed. Isn't necessarily something we see so much of in the West. But, you know, we have so many examples within the scriptures, especially within the Gospels, of, you know, demonic possession. And I said last week that a, a believer cannot be possessed by a demon. Light and darkness cannot dwell together, categorically. But unbelievers, you know, they can be possessed. And, you know, many, you know, some, many commentators say that there was more of a demonic influence at the time when Jesus was actually on the earth, within his earthly ministry. Because you don't necessarily see it to that scale before then, and you don't necessarily see it to that scale after then, but you do see it when Jesus actually walked the earth. There's a good argument there. But the fact that unbelievers can be possessed is true. Scripture says it. And we see that we fight against powers, influences, which even have the ability to influence nature. I mean, we're just looking into the opening chapters of, of Job. And we see how, you know, all calamity broke loose within Job, Job's world. How Satan just manipulated nature to destroy his household. And so, we have to be aware of these things. Now, I'm not trying to say anything what moves, it's a demon. You know, I'm not saying that. I mean, we have to get balance in there, you know, because there's many ministries where it goes, anything will happen, it's a demon. Find a demon. And I'm not saying that. But I'm saying what we need to do is we need to have good balance. We have to be aware that these things are a reality. They're true. But the ultimate goal of these powers is to prevent us from basically enjoying all the benefits of having a relationship with God. You know, Satan doesn't want you or I to, to spend eternity with the Godhead. You know, he knows exactly where he's going and he wants the whole of humanity to be there with him. And so he does all that he can do in order to influence us that way. And so... You know, think, this is a long introduction, but thinking about these things, you know, 
I looked at this and thought, well, I know you say that we should put on the armour, but that, this seems like we're fighting one of those losing battles here. I mean, anybody ever kind of like felt like they're in a situation, just seems like, I know I've got the armour, Lord, but this t- <laughs> I need more than the armour. You need to give me some M16 or something, because it's not working here. But the armour is God's provision. That's exactly what it is. It's his provision. You want to fight this war? Put on the armour. That's exactly what he says. And so, within putting on the armour, you know, we actually, we, we try to thread other portions of scripture. You know, I mentioned it before, but 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, yeah, we walk in the flesh, we are natural beings and everything. Yeah, we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Not in yourself, not in your own opinion, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So when those dodgy off-key thoughts come along, you're like, "Mm -mm -mm, does this line up with God's word? No, oh no, I need to just push that one away. I don't want to entertain that one. Let me meditate on those things which are good. Those things which are of good report. Let me meditate on that. That's a good application. You see, as I said, we are in a war. It's warfare. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, you know, it brings the reality that we are soldiers in a war. You know, we can think of ourselves as being a lovely, beautiful bride. The bride of Christ, and it's true. We can think of ourselves as being the body of Christ, and it's true. But you're also a soldier. Which is more true because you're in a war. And Second Timothy chapter two, verse three says, "You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ." Why did you have to put that word in there, Lord? Hardship. Why can't you just leave that one out? You know, just endure as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Why did you have to put hardship in there? No one engaged in warfare entangles him or herself with the affairs of this life. That he or she may please him who enlisted him or her as a soldier. So, you know what, if you're just consumed with the cares of this life, you're not being a good soldier. Yes, we we have to, you know... Maintain those things, worry about those things, you know what I mean? Because we're in this world, but we're of the world, in the world, but of the world. But there's a bigger picture going on. There's a bigger war going on, which we have to be aware of. And he says that, you know, that he or she may please him who enlisted him or her as a soldier. You know, God's enlisted us as soldiers for a purpose. It goes on to say, and, if, and also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So within this warfare which we have, there are rules. Rules so that we can be effective. And the rule to be effective is put on your armor. Wage this warfare exactly how God has prescribed us to wage it. You know, going through the training process which God wants us to go through by looking at his word, studying his word, hearing his word, outworking his word. You know, if somebody is enlists into the natural army, they don't just send them over to Afghanistan. They go through training. You need to be prepared. You need to get ready. And so this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to, you know, teach us about, tell us about, encourage us with, about putting on the armor of God. 
so that we can function. We know who our enemy is and we can function according to the rules. And so, as we put on the armor, as we looked at last week, you know, we're able to now fight against the enemy's tactics, against his wiles, his lies, his seductions, his trickeries. And so, in verse 10, we'll read from 10 all the way down to 18. But in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Amen. That is God's provision to put on the armor. And as Paul writes this, you know, it's very, very possible, probably is true, that he is taking these references, looking at a picture of a Roman soldier and a Roman soldier's armor. And the first thing, obviously, which we see listed in the armor of God is truth, which is aletheia in the Greek. It says, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So, truth isn't necessarily used as a definite article here. It says, having girded your waist with the truth, it just says, with truth. So it, it basically encompasses everything. It's girding your ways with Christ Jesus because he is the truth. It's girding your ways with integrity, sincerity of heart, doctrinal truth. All these things, you know, applying truth. It's encompassing everything. And as Paul is giving us this illustration here, this picture, you know, girding our waist with truth, you know, I want us to just think just slightly abstract a little bit, but in the ancient world, when their clothing consisted of wearing loose-fitting robes or tunics, and these loose-fitting robes or tunics would keep you obviously cool within a hot climate. But although they would keep you cool, because they were loose, they would actually flap around. There was a lot of extra fab fabric. Okay? And using the picture of a Roman soldier as well, they would, obviously, they would still use a tunic or a robe. Okay? And so, looking at this, the first imagery, really, I think we should get is not necessarily of this belt, of this, this belt or this good in our waist with truth, but it's really of a robe. And it's like the text, in a sense, presumes that you're wearing a tunic. That's how I'm looking at this. Because you're not going to put on a belt around your bare skin, are you? It's just not something you would do. And so, you know, it's, in my mind, it's taking it for granted that you've already got a robe on. And, and the scriptures has a lot to say about robes. We wear, when we come in, in relationship with the Lord, we wear, he gives us a robe of righteousness. And so, can we look at this as saying that we've got a robe of righteousness on? Within this, within this robe of righteousness, you know, it's like, it's good, but it's loose. If you could stay with the, the imagery. It's loose. And it needs to be gathered. It needs to be 
brought together. Now, before we actually look at girding it um, with, with a belt or anything like that, the phrase, having girded your waist, basically was a well-known saying, to be ready. You know, the first-hand hearers of this would have known it means, we've got to get ready. We need to be ready here. Okay? Straight away, they would have known that they needed to be ready to actually perform a task or to go on, to a, on a journey. And so, again, just keeping with this imagery, it's like getting this tunic or this robe and gathering it together so you could be ready to now do something. Because if you didn't gather it together, it's going to hinder you from doing what you want to do. It's going to hinder you from moving quickly. And so the imagery here is, is, is gathering all this loose fabric together with the aid of a belt or a sash. sash. So if you can hear it, the loose fabric represents all that stuff, as I kind of like alluded to before, all that stuff which we carry into our relationship with the Lord. You know, we come into relationship with the Lord, we get born again, but it doesn't mean that our BC life, our before Christ life, just goes away. It doesn't just go away, it just doesn't disappear. we still got those dramas we still got to deal with from our before Christ life. we still got those thoughts stuck in our, in our memory banks, which we can't really shake off, the things we're ashamed of, the things we're embarrassed about, the, the decisions we wish we never ever made. we still got that luggage coming through. And it's like we're saved, but we're carrying this stuff. It's loose. And what, what needs to happen is, is you need to believe the truth which God now says about you. Yeah, those things happen to you, but now God sees you different. You know, when you come into Christ, behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a new life. And so it's like getting that fabric, and now what we need to do is get that fabric and start tucking it in, if you can get the imagery, into truth. What God says is true about me. Not what the devil says is true about me or what my old life says is true about me. Yeah, I made mistakes, but praise God. God doesn't remember it anymore. So I don't remember it anymore. We gather it together in truth. And we establish ourselves in truth. And so, you know, Paul likens girding our ways, being ready, you know, being actively aware that we need to be ready to take all those things and gather it together in the truth of God's word. I keep doing this. Is that all right? <laughs> he likens it to a belt, a belt that holds everything together and keeps everything in its place. So we stand, therefore, having girded our waist with truth, the readiness of mind, the readiness of thought, outworking in our lives what we know to be true, evidencing through our walk with the Lord that we don't just talk a good game, we talk and we walk a good game. And so, truth is meant to gird our waist. And so, I don't know if you guys have been tracking along but on your own, but I got to this point and I was like, well, you could ask yourself the question, well, what is truth? Because that would be a fair question. And that's what we should do when we come to the Bible. We should start asking ourselves these questions. Well, what does that actually mean? You know, when it says truth, what does it mean? Do I just take it for granted that, yeah, it's truth, standard? Or do you investigate it a bit more? What is truth? Because, you know, we can all have our own version of truth. We could all have our own standard of truth. You know, I said earlier that in Europe we have a standard measurement to say that a meter is a meter. 
So if you go and buy a meter of fabric, or if you go and buy a meter of, of wood, or if you go and buy a meter of cable and everything, a meter is a meter. So if I was a seller of wood, and somebody says, I want a, yeah, a couple of meters of that wood, and I give them a couple of inches, they could say, well, no, that, that's not a meter. And I say, well, it's a meter to me. There must be a standard of truth which we can all work to and work from. Yeah? There must be. Otherwise, truth just is like relative, isn't it? It's just whatever's true to you is true to you, and whatever's true to me is true to me. There must be a standard. There must be a level of truth. And as believers, you know, we confidently say that we believe in the truth. So we're here today, we believe in our doctrinal beliefs and everything. We believe, amen, it's true. But then we can go down the road, and if they worship on the sun, you can ask the Jehovah's Witnesses, well, do you believe what you believe is true? It's true. Muslims, is, you, is what you believe true? It's true. It's true. So we might, where's the standard? I hope I'm not scaring you all. And so, again, we believe as, you know, as believers in the, in, the, in the scriptures that this is where we find truth. And truth isn't just something which it is a standard, but it's more than a standard. It, it, it is an ideal, but it's more than an ideal. You see, the Bible defines truth within a person. The person of Jesus Christ. I mean... He personalized truth. He said, well, if you want to know about God, and you want to know how to get to God, and you want to know about truth, then guess what? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You see, he says, I am the way, definite article. The truth, definite article. And the life, definite article. And then he says, no one. So you won't make an exceptions then, Lord. No, no exceptions. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus, sure, you are, that's a that's big talk, Jesus. I mean, how can you just personalize truth and just say that you're truth? Come on now, how are you going to back that up? Well, I say he definitely backed it up. Not just by the things he said, but by the things he did. Jesus said, if you want to know about truth, just look at me. You know, I think one of the disciples said to him, you know, oh, Jesus, just show us the Father. And he says, bruv, have I been with you so long? If you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them, set them apart. How are you going to set them apart then? Set them, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Love it. And so we come to God's word and we, we, we have this confidence that it is true, that we can believe in it. You know, and further on in the Gospel of John, you know, John chapter 18, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, you know, they was having this interesting conversation with each other. And Pilate said, said are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. And then he says, for this cause, I was born. And for this cause, I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. You see, my birth wasn't just meaningless. There was a reason for it. I came for a purpose, which was to establish truth. And I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to show you it. Heavy. 
And then he goes on to say in John 18, 37, he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But we know that it isn't just hearing his voice, it's hearing and doing, don't we? Amen? So it's not just hearing, it's hearing and doing. So Pilate says to him, what is truth? See, I don't think the films actually kind of like really give us the proper way they had the dialogue there, you know? I don't know if you saw my eye kind of like squint when I just did that. What is truth? See, Pilate didn't realize that he had, the, he had the very embodiment of truth standing right before him. And the interesting thing about this whole scenario here is that Pilate was in this position of judge. Well, he thought he was in the judge, but Jesus says, look, you ain't going to have no power unless my father gave you the power in the first place. But he was in this position of judge. And he couldn't find any fault in Jesus. And as it goes on to say, he says, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. Because remember, the Jews are out there saying, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. I want our children's children's children. They just wanted to get rid of him. And he said to them, I find no fault in this man. You see, you can't find fault in truth. Because truth is truth. You can't find fault in Jesus because Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. I don't have any other ways to say it. It's truth. How can you going to find fault in Jesus? And so, as we walk with the Lord, as we walk in the Lord, you know, we too, as his children, have to walk in truth. We have to represent him well. We're his ambassadors. And so we have to gather together. Again, this imagery of this fabric, put it together around with, with a belt of truth. Gather together, you know, this our godly character, sincerity of heart, integrity. And knowing how to conduct ourselves before the Lord. There's a very interesting verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, which, where Paul says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. You see, we, we know that the church isn't a building, it's the makeup of the people, amen? And so, we have to be established in truth. Really, anyone who comes through these doors should be able to come here and say, yeah, I experience truth. You know, when us, when I could see that truth is being evidenced in these people's lives. I know there's no hypocrisy here. I know that as Jesus says that they should, they should love him and love each other, they do. I know that it doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, old, young, fat, thin, short, tall. If you come in here, you should be, a sta- you should be able to experience the truth of God's word. That God's people would not be partial. That God's people would demonstrate his love and that whether you believe we're believer or non-believer you should be able to come away from it and say yeah those guys don't just say it they actually believe it they outwork it we should know how to conduct ourselves in the house of god which is the church of the living god the pillar and ground of truth and so These are the things we need to consider as we walk with the Lord, as we gather amongst each other. And just as a side note, if 
I made with the, with, the, with the belt of truth. The belt of truth on a Roman soldier, the, the belt of a Roman soldier actually had a strap which was attached to it. It went from the belt over the shoulder back to the back and was connected there. And on the strap was actually, this is where the sword was fastened. And so, if you can think of the imagery like this, it's like the sword and the belt was closely connected. And so, as we go out, as Mike goes out and evangelizes, you know, he needs to wield his sword based upon truth. Because then it's effective. Then the Lord, by his spirit, is able to use what you're wielding and let it do what it needs to do. So we gird our waist with truth, the belt of truth. And it, you know, we practical applications. Tucking in all those things which we know are true and just having them. So that, you know, we're no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because we know what we know. We know our word. You know, we're not emotionally driven because we know that God's word isn't necessarily based on our emotions. We have emotions, but God's word's not based on our emotions. I feel God is close to me, therefore God is close to me. I don't feel God is close to me, so he's not close to me. No. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or you don't feel it. But I'm going through such a bad time in my life. It's such a rough season. Amen. And the Lord is still there with you. And he may be like Paul. His answer to you may be just like Paul. You know what, Paul? My grace is sufficient. Or he may just provide some miracle for you. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he does is yes and amen. And you see, as we keep on establishing truth within our life, however you want to do the imagery, if you like me doing this, however you want to establish it within your life, John chapter 8 and verse 32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So there's freedom in knowing truth. There's freedom in applying truth. There's freedom... In having truth locked down and girded around our waist. And so, studying, hearing, applying, meditating, all these things are application. So we stand therefore having girded our waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is the next item that Paul lists. And within the armor of a Roman soldier, the breastplate would cover the vital organs. It would cover, you know, your heart, and in particular, your bowels. And the breastplate went from just under the neck to the top of the thighs. And by many, it is considered to be the key item of all the armor. I don't know if there is really a key item, but if if there was one, they say it would be this one. Why would they say that? Well... In the natural, as I said, the breastplate would cover your vital organs. And so Roman soldiers would normally go into close one-to-one combat. They would have short swords, and so they'd be fighting. And if you get um, 300 in your mind, or, or what's the one with Brad Pitt? Troy. There you go. And so you get those things in your mind. You see this close to close arm to arm combat and everything. And so if you're fighting and, and then somebody does their sword and it kind of like... Your breastplate would protect you. You, you know, you, you wouldn't be just sliced open. Okay? And so, in the natural, it just protected you. And also, you know, if there were straight arrows going around, you know, it just bounced off. So, it's a very, very vital part of um, armor. But also, it was considered to be vital because in Hebrew terms... The breastplate covered the vital organs of the heart, which in Hebrew terms represents the mind and the thinking aspect of our life. Now, I say that because Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
Matthew says that from out of the abundance of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, witness blasphemies. So, you know, the heart is connected to the mind, the thought life. Not like us in the West, we kind of like draw these lovely hearts and everything, and it's just all based upon our emotions and Cupid and all that. No, not in Hebrew thought, okay? We have Jeremiah saying the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Knowing. Who can you know? How can you know it? See? Thought life. But the breastplate also covered the bowels. Now, the bowels represented our emotional life, our feelings, and I say that, see, somebody's looking very puzzled over there. But I say that because, right, when you're feeling emotional, you often get knotted in your stomach. You see, you get those knots in your stomach. If you're madly in love with someone, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't sleep. You're just knotted in your stomach because you get that feeling, that sensation in your stomach. But equally, if you're mad with someone who's close to you, you equally get that feeling within your stomach. It's not in. Okay? You can't like get it within your stomach. And so, to the Hebrew mindset, the stomach represented your, your, your emotions. And so, it covered the, the breastplate covered the, the bowel area. And so, they considered this area, to, you know, in Hebrew thought, it was considered key because we're talking about your thought life and your emotional life. That needs to be protected. Because that's exactly where Satan comes. He comes in your thought life. So if you're not established on truth, he's going to get you in your thought life. If you're not established in truth, then your emotions, as we've said, I feel God today, so he's close to me. Or I don't feel close to God today. So he's not close to me. If you haven't got your emotions in check. And you haven't got your thought life in check. That's exactly how the enemy comes. And he's skillful in what he does. He gets all of us within those areas. And so if we haven't got truth locked down. We start thinking wrongly. The enemy starts feeding us with the wrong thoughts with wrong doctrine if we take it too far we start getting seared in our conscience that so that the things which were, were horrific to us when we first came into a relationship with the lord oh it's not so bad now it's okay the lord doesn't mind he he watches over that one but no, you see, our, our conscience becomes seared. We become numb to sin. And so the breastplate is covering this emotional thing and thinking things so that we don't come numb to sin. We start thinking rightly. And so we have to put on the armor daily. And I said last week, we put it on and we keep it on. You see, as we start looking at these things now, we see exactly why we need these aspects of God's armor in order to wage a good warfare, in order to fight a good fight. The armor is God's provision. You know, I laughed and says, you know, we, he's not going to give us an M16. He's not going to give us one of those tanks or those, those airplanes which radar can't detect. You're not going to get it. But you are going to get the armor of God. And so we have to appropriate it. And when it's talking about the breastplate of righteousness, it's not your own righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. You know, in Philippians, you know, Paul says, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. Which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. We appropriate Christ's righteousness by faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 
So, we put on the armor of God. We gird our waist with truth and we daily put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. And as we do this, we remember all of God's benefits. All of the benefits which I listed last week. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have an eternal inheritance. He has given us power, 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 power. He's given us wisdom. He's given us knowledge. We are no longer darkness, but we're now in the light of his love. All these benefits we need to remember and appropriate in our lives. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 68, he said, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. The God of our salvation. And he closes that, pool, that verse there with Selah. Salah meaning, just take your time. Don't, don't rush off to the next verse. Just, just pause there for a second and think about what I've just said. And so, you know, that is the closing thought. Selah. Girding our waist with truth. Putting on that breastplate of righteousness. Yes. You know, just Pause. Think about that for a minute. Meditate on it. You know, the whole thing of, medi- of, of meditating is, is, in a way, it means to mutter, to keep churning over, keep churning over those things. Meditate on it. And as we do that, we just pray that, you know, the Lord will just establish us in his truth, establish us in his righteousness, and that as the enemy comes, we know that we've got our weapons of our warfare warfare intact, that we can fight a good fight. Amen? Amen. 